Hi, this is Selena Wido from the Cooper University Hospital in Camden, New Jersey, and I'm here today with the Career Development Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma with one of our career casts. Today I have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Ann Mosenthal. Dr. Mosenthal is known as a leader in trauma surgery and surgical palliative care and currently serves as a Benjamin F. Rush Endowed Chair and Professor and Chair for the Department of Surgery at Rutgers New Jersey Medical School. She is certified by the American Board of Surgery in Surgery, Surgical Critical Care, and Palliative and Hospice Medicine, and is the founding director of the first palliative care division in, in surgery in the nation. She serves in several advisory roles, including as the chair of the American College of Surgeons Committee on Surgical Palliative Care, and as a member of the advisory board, IPAL-ICU, for the Center to Advance Palliative Care. Throughout her career, she's been the recipient of numerous awards and recognitions, amongst which are cho being chosen as a faculty scholar in the Project on Death in America program with the Soros Foundation, as a recipient of the uh, Society of Critical Care Medicine's Grenvik Family Award for Ethics, and most recently being named the 2018 Olga Jonasson Distinguished Member Award for the Association of Women Surgeons. Uh, so thank you very much for joining us, Dr. Mosenthal. We're looking forward to talking with you. Well, thank you for, uh, for speaking with me. It's really an honor. I think what prompted um, this call or the interest in the topic of surgical palliative care is there seems to be an ever-growing increase in the elderly population. And according to the NIH statistics, America's 65 and over population is projected to nearly double over the coming three decades, from 44 million to 88 million by 2050. And what that means is we're seeing the greater number of elderly in the hospital setting um, where we're encountering them in various stages of illness, of, of living and dying. Um, and trying to figure out what that means for us as practitioners and how to provide the best care for folks who are in the end stages of their lives. So how did you first discover your interest in palliative care? So uh, my interest in palliative care really arose out of my experience as a trauma surgeon. Uh, as a young trauma surgeon, one of the most challenging things I had to do and still have to do is to go out and speak to a mother or a father after uh, a young person has died from trauma, whether in the emergency room or in the operating room. And this experience, I realized, was the hardest part of my job, and I was ill-prepared to know how to do it well. Um, and I, it really caused a great deal of distress initially. So at that time, and I was... Just in my new faculty position, um, I really was looking for some guidance in how to do this better uh, and what did it all mean. And I ended up uh, partnering with a wonderful nurse uh, named Pat Murphy, who was the director of our bereavement and ethics service at the hospital. And she had really done a lot of career in um, studying and helping to develop Breaking Bad News, and she was very involved in palliative care. So we actually partnered together and um, we wrote the grant for the Soros Foundation and became faculty scholars. And our pilot project was developing palliative care for trauma patients, which had never been done before. Um, and we started down this path of rethinking what palliative care really is. And to me, palliative care includes um, people dying in the emergency room very suddenly, not just people dying from cancer. And it also includes survivorship, uh, so it's not just about death and dying, uh, as I've come to learn. So that's how it got started. Um, and then I 
transitioned to really doing a lot of a lot of palliative care in the ICU, which is another area that we really found a gap. So that's and here I am. A very a very succinct way of saying you've uh, <laughs> paved the way for a lot of for a lot of what we know now in surgical palliative care. Have you ever, along the way, um, come up with a conflict between that sense of a duty to treat and the desire to serve the patient's wishes and provide comfort and support? So I guess I don't see that as a conflict. And, in fact, it's not a conflict. We do have a duty to treat, but we have a duty to treat with um, treatments that will help the patient and meet their goals. and the goal of survival at all costs is not necessarily everybody's goal. That's particularly true in the elderly who value maybe quality of life and function and independence more than length of life. Um, and if treatments are so burdensome that uh, it's not the right thing for the patient, I don't think there's really a conflict. Uh, I, I see palliative care as part of what we all do every day as surgeons or as physicians. Um, it's really helping people to uh, meet the goals that are important to them uh, and obviously cure disease and live as long as possible, but to live as well as possible and to be able to have choices um, and support what the patient's values are. So I don't, I'm not sure it's a conflict. We tend to see surgery and palliative care as an either-or. That's the traditional model. The tr- traditional paradigm, yeah. Yeah, the the traditional paradigm. Uh, and I think what we need to think about is how do we integrate the two and make it part of what how we care for patients. So it's not an either-or, it's together in parallel. Um, and you can provide curative therapy at the same time that you're addressing comfort and having the appropriate discussions and communication, and they can all go together. That's what I'm trying to advance in our work in the American College of Surgeons and now the uh, the AAST. We just started a committee to explore that as well and developing guidelines to help all of us who are surgeons and tend to think of things in the traditional way, how we can just change the paradigm a bit and make it more patient-centered. And I was going to ask about this later, but uh, that was a perfect segue into bringing up um, you're also active in the ACS surgical palliative care community, as well as having um, uh, active um, message boards and chat boards available on their website. Um, it looks like it right now it only has about 105 members, but um, the palliative care community, at least online, but it's a great opportunity to start discussion. Um, there have been some pretty uh, interesting topics broached there um, and some pretty good physician-to-physician input. Um, I know that's one of the things you had um, recommended uh, earlier on. Um, are there any more plans for the um, uh, for the online content for the online community? Um, well, we have actually, we have a different editor, I think every three months, uh, we have a different person who's responsible for stimulating some discussion and coming up with ideas. So there's always new ideas floating around. And needless to say, you know, there's very often things in the news or um, that are very relevant either from an ethical standpoint or a palliative care standpoint that that people want to post about. So I think it's it's a, a great place to start some discussions and stimulate and stimulate interest, and obviously anybody who's a member of the American College of Surgeons can join the community. Um, so we're hoping it will grow. 
Now to go back a little bit to the beginning. Now after that first spark of interest um, in palliative care, uh, what what led you to then take the steps to become formally trained in palliative care or, or, or pursue fellowship training? So I actually did not do a formal fellowship uh, in palliative care. Um, at the time that I became involved, I really sought my own professional development in it by doing uh, certain certain seminars, uh, attending meetings, and uh, part of my faculty scholar project was actually spending uh, time dedicated on a palliative care service um, and for my own professional development. So I I um, I got a lot of experience, particularly in communication skills, uh, and did some of the programs that are out there um, to to help develop that. But uh, at the time, uh, one could become board certified um, with and grandfather in based on an experiential pathway, which is what I did. Uh, that is no longer true as of, I think, 2012 was the last year that somebody could grandfather in to take the palliative care boards. Now you have to do a fellowship um, to be eligible for the boards. So I, it really came out of, as I talked about, my experience in trauma in the ICU, and I just started to try to enhance my own expertise. Uh, and then I sat for the boards when they when they uh, became available. So it wasn't until I think 2008 that um, a separate uh, sub board in hospice and palliative medicine was developed. And there are about 12 sponsoring boards. One of them is the, the American Board of Surgery. So that's the that's the pathway. It's very similar to surgical critical care, where you have to have a primary board certification, and then you can do an added qualification in hospice and palliative medicine. Yeah, at this point, it looks like there's still no specialized training in, in specifically surgical palliative care, but rather general palliative care fellowship that accepts surgically trained applicants. Um, and the board being offered through the ABS, uh, the ABS or through various other ABMS specialties, depending on what people's primary certification is. Now, that is correct, think, yeah. Now, do you, would, what would you tell some a junior faculty or someone coming out of training now that says, I am a surgeon first and foremost and love my patients, but want to foster my, my interest, foster my um, skill set, but also um, advance my career? Do you, do you think formal training... Um, such as fellowship or pursuing extra courses are necessary to 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 gather the palliative care skill set. I think it's it's uh, it's a great way to go if you want to really practice hospice and palliative medicine. In order to practice it in a very robust way, um, you need to be board certified. It's the only path to get board certified. That said, if you are you know different stages of your career. Uh, you can certainly gain the skills through experience, um, but you can't get that ticket. I think that for a young person who is just coming out of training or a young uh, a young surgeon, I think the best approach would be to do the fellowship training. It gives you the most options. Um, the um, and then and then become board certified. And certainly, if you want to be in academics or in a faculty position, I, I strongly suggest that. That said, I think there's a lot of opportunity for other pathways to get more training. Um, there's a Harvard uh, has a two-week seminar on care of the seriously ill that's done in, I think, two separate one-week 
uh, blocks that reviews uh, a lot of palliative care. There's the Center to Advance Palliative Care. There's a lot of online education. There's a lot of opportunities to to really get professional development without doing a whole fellowship if that's if that's either not feasible or too time consuming. So I think there's a lot. I think it's it's becoming in surgery more and more the concept of surgeons doing what we call primary palliative care, which are the very basic core elements that we as surgeons need in our everyday practice, communication skills, pain and symptom management how to um, communicate and support families in crisis um, and doing some some very basic end-of-life care. I think um, there are many societies and pathways to get that training uh, now. Um, and, of course, the ACGME has just uh, come out with a every physician, every physician training program must include some aspect of palliative medicine in their training paradigm. Yeah, and I think even in, it was in 2001 that the American Board of Surgery also made this statement um, the required, quote, unquote, the general surgeon is to have the knowledge and skills in palliative care and management of pain, weight loss, and cachexia in patients with malignant chronic conditions. And we can probably add some acute conditions in there as well. Um, yep. But, yeah, the message seems to be being sent very loud and clear to um, all of our trainees and diplomats that, that, this, is, that this is an integral skill set. Um, and, each, and each of the separate six ACGME core competencies require acquisition of palliative care skill set growth and development. Yes. Um, there is one other pathway for trainees, um, and it's similar to surgical critical care. So there is now um, one can do... Uh, as opposed to a research year, take a year in, in the middle of residency. I think you have to finish three years of surgical training and take a year uh, off of surgery to do your palliative medicine fellowship. And then you are board eligible uh, to take the boards, you know, once you're board certified in surgery. So that is another pathway, and there are a number of uh, people doing that, a number being like three or four uh, over the last couple of years that have availed themselves of that of that pathway. Um, and I think that is very useful. I mean, the problem with Palliative Medicine Fellowship is that it's obviously completely non-operative. And I think to come out of your training as a surgeon and then immediately go into a non-operative training uh, pathway, it doesn't entirely make sense for a lot of people. So there's a couple of different options. Understood. So for the for the faculty members who have their palliative care chops or have the experience, the courses behind them, the fellowship training, um, how? I guess I'll turn this over to more of your clinical experience. And what what in your experience has been the biggest barrier to integrating palliative care in the ICU or to those people integrating palli their palliative care skill sets into their day to day clinical practice? So I think uh, those are two separate issues. I think the biggest barrier to uh, integrating palliative care into the ICU is ourselves um, and our attitudes and kind of uh, thinking about the paradigm that it's it's an either-or sort of scenario. And it's not just ourselves as individual physicians, but our whole system is not really conducive to um, embracing palliative care in the way that I think that we all ultimately want to move to. So I think there's a lot of surgical momentum. There's a lot of ICU momentum. Once we get started down a pathway, it's really hard to stop. Um, 
many people feel uncomfortable um, and think that if we withdraw life support that we're somehow that's equivalent to euthanasia, which it's really not. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of misconceptions, and I think those are those are barriers. Um, but I and I think it in some institutions there's a culture of embracing it and having it part of of all our care, and in other institutions it's not. And I think that's I think the cultural aspects of different institutions is probably the biggest problem. The um, in terms of actively integrating into one's practice, I think what we're still struggling with is uh, someone who's a surgeon and has done a palliative medicine fellowship and wants to have a combined practice. What is the, you know, what what are the job opportunities? How does one put that together? Uh, and it's very unclear. Um, and you know, I've been involved with advising other young surgeons about how to put this together and it, and it's it's complicated and we don't we haven't figured that out yet. Um I'm able to do it because I do trauma and ICU and I integrate it into my own practice and we have a training program and we teach it and so it's become part of the fabric of our both our ICU service and our trauma service um and to a large degree our general surgery services but a little bit less so. Uh, but that's that's in in part because of my influence and because that's the culture we've created here. But that's not true everywhere. So I think it's a work in progress. I don't have a and specific you, answer. <laughs> and you've mentioned the culture. Do you have any um, any advice for for faculty on how they can impact that culture? How they can um, try and change maybe a uh, relatively um, closed off, not palliative care friendly um, ICU or, or institution to being more to kind of embracing the more holistic approach to the patient as a whole in palliative in the palliative care paradigm. Yeah, I think that's always the challenge, and that was the challenge for us when we started down this road um, 15 years ago. I think there's a couple of key ingredients. One is to find out what um, what people and generally other physicians uh perceptions are about what are the what are the needs um and uh so that's one kind of doing a needs assessment of what other people would feel is helpful in taking care of their patients uh two is building a team and often the team for palliative care is um people in other disciplines nursing palliative medicine obviously uh psychosocial specialties um the ethics service, if there is one, the chaplain, and finding people who are really champions in their own world that can come together uh, and help build uh, build a platform for that this is a good idea. And the last is you really need leadership. So if uh, you're a, you know, first year in practice, it's really hard to make change, but you need to get the attention of a key opinion leader. In the, whether it's in the department in the hospital um and have them and have them help champion the effort. I think it really helps to have data uh and show perhaps the need or the gap in care that uh patients are perhaps suffering because there isn't there's an adequate palliative care um, the The other leverage point in the hospital is looking at the length of stay of people who die. And the cost 
um, and getting people out of the ICU who ultimately die or to hospice is another point where the hospital is very interested in doing that. So there's a lot of different opportunities to build a story and a case for uh, for palliative care, depending on what the issues are in one's own institution. And that all of those are essentially things that we did when we started our program. Um, the other thing we did was incorporate uh, end-of-life care metrics into our M&M. That was very effective in helping surgeons think about changing their practice. Those are, I think, the key points. I hadn't even thought about incorporating incorporating it into the M&M process. I mean, that's something that we do on a relatively regular basis that would that would really encourage public and open discussion of of, of the palliative aspects or, or the end of life aspects around around some of these cases. That would be a way to bring it into the forefront and really encourage open discussion about it. So. Yeah, I think it, I think it really is. Um, there are. You know, there are uh, quite a few tools out there for all of these um, at the Center to Advance Palliative Care. For one, there are other, there are other sites as well um, that talk about how to build a program, how to make the case to your hospital administration. Um, so there are, there are some toolkits available um, online mostly. And that was and that was actually a perfect segue to my to my last question <laughs> um, is the other the resources that are available for um, people along each step of their career for for medical students um, for residents I think the surgical palliative care a residence guide produced by the ACF and the kind of Dixon Foundation is um, is there online available at the American College of Surgeons website um, but for fellows and junior faculty um, I think you had already mentioned Harvard Medical School's practical aspects of palliative medicine course. Um, as well as the ACS Palliative Care Community um, on the American College of Surgeons website. Um, I think there's the End of Life Physician Education Resource Center online, um, yes. as well as um, a set of podcasts uh, actually called Jerry Pal, um, which is um, a specialty of the geriatrics and palliative care blog um, that are at least able to be listened to in the car and kind of multitask when you're driving to and from work. Yes, those are all great. <laughs> so we, um, our task any, force. Any of them that I missed. Um, there probably are. So there's a, some wonderful materials on the uh, Wisconsin Palliative Care Network, which is a site that's similar to the Center to Advance Palliative Care. It has a lot of tools, uh, training, um, and I think you just have to join and be a member to get access to it. And um, that's really terrific. Um, and David Weissman, who uh, started the end-of-life physician education resource center, is part was part of that. The um so there are there are others. There are clearly local, regional uh places that that specialize in this. Um we are working on some uh curriculum for practicing physicians as well as uh we will be starting to uh do some curriculum for fellows, particularly in acute care surgery, uh surgical critical care. There's already um uh quite a few trainings for oncologists called Oncotalk. There's Vital Talk, which is another communication skills uh focused program. I'm sure I'm leaving some out, so I there's probably more. Well thank you very much again for for, for coming and talking with me today and um for sharing all these things. I really appreciate it. Is there anything that I missed that you want to um add or to share in addition? 
I don't think so. Uh, <laughs> only, only to say that um, I think it's a it's a really wonderful field, and it is now truly a field. And I encourage, particularly people who are coming just out of their training, to get more expertise in it. So, well, thank you again. And for the listeners still staying tuned, um, if you're interested, please visit the McLean Center for Medical Ethics' YouTube channel. Um, you can watch in its entirety Dr. Mosenthal's session titled Palliative Care and Trauma, Violence and the Ethics of Care um, for more information on the topic.